Kurt stated last week that Romans 6.1 marks a transition in Paul's letter, and he's right. Up to this point, we have been focused in our study of Romans entirely upon the question of justification. That is, seeking an answer to the question, how can a sinner be made right in the sight of a just and holy God? And we spent 27 weeks working through the first five chapters of this book. And I don't apologize for that at all. I think it's good and right and necessary that we do so because this is where we must begin. Many of you today, I know, came in with all manner of questions and concerns that are just pervading your life. Questions about your, your marriage, your family, your jobs, your health, your finances, your relationships, and on and on and on. And, and those questions are important, but they are not ultimate. Before and above those questions lies one fundamental and ultimate and eternal question, namely, how do I stand in relation to my Creator? Am I right with God? From Romans 1.18 to 3.20, Paul labored to show us that no one, not one of us, is right with God by nature. We are all of us sinners. Every one of us has turned away from God and has embraced a life that does not honor God as our God. A life that is not submitted to his reign and rule. Now, this rebellion certainly takes different forms. It looks differently in different lives. For some, it takes the form of a life of degenerate sin. While for others, it takes the form of a life of religious and moral hypocrisy. But the root of each is the same. We don't love and trust and honor and obey God as God. And this sin has placed us underneath God's wrath and judgment. For the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. But beginning in 3.21 and running through the end of chapter 5, Paul laid out the divine remedy for this predicament. A gracious redemption won for us by Christ in his life and death and resurrection received by faith alone. Paul presented to us Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God and the sinless Son of Man who became the representative of sinners who believe. By faith, by embracing Christ with a heartfelt trust, we are united to Christ in his redemptive, representative work. For those of us who believe, Jesus stood in our place as our substitute in the judgment of God so that when He died on the cross, it was as if we had died. When He suffered the wrath and judgment of God, it was as if God had poured out His judgment and wrath upon us. The death of Christ paid the wages of our sin in full, satisfying the demands of justice in our place. Furthermore, when we are united to Christ 
by faith, he becomes our representative. His righteousness, his obedience is accounted to us as if we had obeyed God in perfect righteousness and thereby merited God's blessing of eternal life. Thus, the first five chapters of Romans have answered humanity's ultimate question. How can a sinner be justified, that is, set right, made right, before a holy God? And Paul has labored to answer that question in this way only by a wholehearted embrace of Jesus Christ as your Savior and your representative. Now that portion of Romans ends on a soaring note of triumph in Romans 5.20 and 21, where Paul wrote, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Grace has been the, the theme of the first section of Paul's letter. Our redemption is owing to nothing in ourselves. No works, no merit, no righteousness of our own, nothing. Our redemption finds its source only in the sovereign grace of God and the saving intervention of Christ. We are, as Paul wrote, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul labored to show us that no one can work their way into God's favor. They can only receive God's acceptance as a free gift through faith. But this unrelenting emphasis upon the grace of God in justifying sinners by faith apart from works faces certain objections. It faced objections in Paul's day. It faces objections today. Paul had undoubtedly heard one such objection in particular excuse me, numerous times, wherever, in fact, he preached this gospel to a Jewish audience. That objection, this primary objection to the gospel of grace, is stated in Romans 6.1, where Paul says, what shall we say then? He's raising this objection, uh, at, which he had heard numerous times, so that he can dismantle it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now what those who raise this objection are saying is that Paul has undercut morality by severing works from justification. As soon as Paul makes the claim that justification or forgiveness of sins or eternal life is not a wage paid in return for good works, but rather is a gift bestowed by grace through faith, he seems to have removed all motivation for morality. All motivation for a life of righteousness and goodness and obedience. Why be good if it doesn't get me anything? Why not load up on sin if God is, is willing to forgive those sins if only I believe in Jesus? To the unregenerate mind, it seems like a whale of a deal. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. We've got a good thing going here. If God's grace is free and abounds all the more, 
such that my sin is is always met with a sufficient supply of God's grace, then why not just sin all the more that grace may abound all the more? That's what's behind this objection. Now notice how Paul does not respond to this objection. He does not respond by backing off of what he has said. He does not respond by hedging on the grace of the gospel. He doesn't say, what? No, 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 you've misunderstood me. It's not that our good works have nothing to do with our justification. Rather, it's that the the works of Christ come in and complete what is lacking in our own righteousness. I mean, of, of course you have to be good. That is not what Paul says, is it? If what you've heard from Paul and from me over the last three chapters, is that God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any human merit, any human righteousness, any human works of any kind, then you have heard rightly. John Stott highlights the importance of this point when he writes, if we are proclaiming Paul's gospel with its emphasis on the freeness of grace and the impossibility of self-salvation, we are sure to provoke the charge of lawlessness. If we do not arouse this criticism, listen, if we do not arouse this criticism, the likelihood is that we are not preaching Paul's gospel. Do you hear what he's saying? If the response of some to our gospel is not something like this, you, you cannot mean that God simply forgives those who trust him without their actually having to do something to make up for the bad things that they've done. That can't be what you mean. And then they go on and they complain about how this is unfair and unjust and it's open to abuse by those who will just run amok in sin because they know that God will forgive them anyway, if that's not the response of some to our gospel, then we must be preaching a different gospel than Paul preached. And that's a bad deal. Because Paul threatened dreadful things to those who preach a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So let it be said again that you have heard me rightly. Forgiveness really is that free. God really is that gracious. The gospel really is that good. So how does Paul respond to this objection? Does he just shrug it off and and admit, yeah, that is the unfortunate side effect of grace? You are going to have some people just take it and they're just going to run amok with it. There's nothing we can do about that, so we're just not going to worry about it. No, that is not how he responds. He responds with absolute abhorrence at the very thought that someone would take the grace of God and turn it into a license to sin. No, that's, even that's not quite strong enough. Paul does not just say that it is unthinkable that someone would turn the grace of God into a license to sin. He says that it is impossible that someone could do such a thing. Look at verse 2. By no means 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is here arguing from the ultimate aim of the gospel, the ultimate aim of Christ's saving work, which is not merely the forgiveness of sins. Justification is not the end of the gospel. If it were, Romans would end at the end of chapter 5. As you can see, it doesn't. Justification is the means to the end. Christ did not die merely to remove the penalty of our sin. Christ died to break its power over our lives so that we would become, as Kurt preached last week, new creatures in Christ. A holy vibrant, loving, faithful people in the sight of God. To demonstrate this point, I want to take you to three different passages in Paul's writings to show what Paul considered to be the aim, the goal of the gospel. First, I want you to turn back with me to Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is the thesis statement of the entire book of Romans. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Mark that. The power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, so that it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this gospel, Paul's gospel, Christ's gospel, is the power of God for salvation. And by salvation, Paul does not mean justification only. He means the whole of redemption culminating in our resurrection and our glorification on the last day. So the gospel, according to Paul, does not just declare God's pardon for our sins, it also mediates to us God's power. It does something. Namely, it brings the righteousness of God to sinners through faith, and then it brings the justified believing sinner through faith unto salvation. Now I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2, a little bit later in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2, where Paul describes for us how the grace of God actually accomplishes this. How does it actually bring people to salvation? Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, in other words, in the gospel, bringing salvation for all people. How? By training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." So how does, how does the gospel bring salvation to people? 
According to Paul, it does so through holiness. It does so by transforming their lives, by providing power, training, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. According to Paul in this text, to what end did our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, give himself over to death? Answer, to redeem from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works, a holy people. Now I want you to look at those verses. Look at those verses. And tell me if let us continue in sin that grace may abound has any place in Paul's conception of the gospel. If Paul conceives of the gospel like this, it's no wonder that he's horrified by the suggestion put forth in Romans 6.1 that we could turn the grace of God in the gospel into a license to sin. Finally, I want you to turn back with me to Philippians chapter 3, just back a few books in the New Testament, where Paul is contrasting the way that he viewed life and religion prior to his conversion with the way that he views it now. And he expresses the longing of his converted heart, the longing of every heart which likewise has experienced the grace of God in the gospel. We'll begin at chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Just pause there for a second. That's what happens when you see Christ revealed in the gospel. Everything else just sort of devalues. And Christ becomes that which is of surpassing worth. He says, for for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Okay, That would be Romans 1-5. to But Romans doesn't end at chapter 5, and Paul doesn't end there in Philippians chapter 3. In order that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want you to notice the order of Paul's desires here. First comes justification. The possession by faith of the righteousness of Christ by which he gains Christ and is found in him. Right? That's the start, but it is not the end. Paul's life radically changed. His outlook was radically altered when he gained Christ, when he was justified. But that justification produced something further. Paul Paul didn't find himself just saying, thank God I've got forgiveness of sins. Now, let me just continue to live the same way I was because, after all, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. No, that justification produced a new desire in Paul's heart. He says it led to a desire to know Christ. That is to know him in his resurrection power. Now Paul recognizes that this knowing of Christ is going to include suffering. And he's ready and he's willing to die with Christ if it means attaining to the resurrection of the dead, which is the final goal of his salvation. Now, 
I contend that the first resurrection that Paul speaks of in verse 10 is different from the second resurrection that he speaks of in verse 11. The first resurrection, the power of his resurrection, is something that Paul knows and experiences in his life now. The second resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, is something to which he will attain then. So between Paul's justification, verse 9, and his resurrection and glorification in verse 9 is something called sanctification, or as Paul describes it, knowing Christ in the power of his resurrection. Does that phrase describe your life as a follower of Christ? Would you describe your life of following Christ as a life of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection experientially and progressively now? It should. And that is what Romans 6 is all about. It is all about knowing the power of Christ's resurrection in your life now. This is how Paul answers the objection, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Isn't your gospel of grace, Paul, just a a license to sin? Not only is such a thought absurd, it is abhorrent. For Christ died not only to redeem us from sin's penalty, but to rescue us from sin's power. When we were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we not only received forgiveness and pardon, something changed in us. New life was birthed in us, and we cannot remain the same. We have a new Lord, a new master, and his sovereign purpose and omnipotent power is directed toward making us holy. Now Paul expresses that thought in verses 2 to 4 by using the language of union with Christ. Okay, This is still tracing the thought that he was... He was playing off of in Romans chapter 5 where Adam and Christ were contrasted. You remember? Just as we were united with Adam in his sin and his fall such that his sin is our sin, his guilt is our guilt, his nature is our nature, his death is our death. That was our union with Adam. Even so, Paul said, we are united with Christ such that His death becomes our death, His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and His nature becomes our nature. Just as surely as we could not be righteous when we were still united to Adam, so we cannot but become righteous now that we are united to Christ. And according to Paul, the means by which we are united to Christ is baptism which for Paul stands for the whole conversion event of faith. When you were baptized in faith, the old you, okay, the the you who was united to Adam died and was buried. A new you, the you that is united to Christ, was raised up in its place. Now, of course, if you are not a believer, 
then no such thing happened to you, even if you have been baptized. But if you are a believer, your baptism was no empty ritual. You died and were raised with Christ. However, it is the baptized unbeliever who says the sort of thing that Romans 6.1 says who turns the grace of God into a license to sin. Are you beginning to see why Paul finds that objection so abhorrent? To suggest such a thing is to completely misunderstand his gospel. Because his gospel does not just bring pardon for sin, it brings power over sin. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in those who believe now, transforming them into the image of Christ, says Romans 8.11. Now, Paul has not yet explained what, or more precisely, who that power is, but in Romans 8, he will specify that it is the Holy Spirit who dwells in the souls of the children of God. Just think about that. The third person of the triune Godhead indwells the souls of those who believe. And you're worried that such people are going to turn the grace of God into a license to sin? The thought is enough to make Paul nauseous. This morning's text is a continuation of last week's passage. Last week, Paul said that it was impossible for a believer to live in sin. That is, to continue to live under sin's dominion as the ruling, dominating force in his or her life. Why? Because the believer died to sin in baptism and was raised to walk in a new way of life. This week, Paul explains and expounds upon what he meant. You can see the connection between these two passages at the beginning of verse 5 where Paul introduces this next paragraph with the word for. In other words, he's getting ready to explain and expound upon what he's just said. And then he concludes with some instructions for what we're to do with these truths. Verses 5 to 11 are indicatives. If you remember back to your middle school or maybe high school, junior high English class, you'll know that indicatives are declarative statements, right? They're statements of what is, in fact, true. Verses 12 to 14 are what are called imperatives. They are commands, instructions for what we are to do on the basis of the indicative statements, The Christian faith exists in the tension between the indicative and the imperative mood. Between what has been done and what we are to do in light of what has been done. If that feels like a tension, it is. And we're we're living in that tension. But, and this is absolutely crucial, In the Christian faith, the indicative always comes first. It motivates the imperative, and it makes certain its success. That's precisely the way Paul approaches the issue of Christian holiness in Romans 6. So in the time that remains to us this morning, we're going to look first at the indicatives of the gospel, and then we'll conclude with the imperatives of the gospel. 
I see in verses 5 to 11 two indicatives of the gospel, two truths which are realities for everyone who has been baptized by faith into Christ. Okay, these are stated at both the beginning and the conclusion of this paragraph in verses 5 and verse 11. Let's look at those. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Then down in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Okay? There are the two indicatives, two truths, which are realities for every baptized believer. First, you are dead to sin. Second, you are alive to God. Let's look at the first one. You are dead to sin, or as Paul puts it in verse 5, you have been united with Christ in a death like His. In other words, he's saying you have been crucified with Christ, as in Galatians 2.20. Now again, this is the Adam-Christ covenant representative language from Romans 5. If you have been baptized by faith into Christ, then when Christ was crucified, he was crucified as your representative. You died with him on that cross. I remind you that we're familiar with the representative language. You have representatives in Jefferson City and in Washington, D.C. They vote for you. Their vote is your vote. Even so, Christ was our representative, the representative of baptized believers such that when he was crucified, he was crucified for us. His death is our death. When Christ died, you died. That is the old you, the you in Adam. And the purpose of this crucifixion was in order that your body of sin might be brought to nothing, he says. Look at verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Christ went to the cross. He died in, in order that the old you, the old you in Adam, your old body of sin would be rendered powerless. Now Paul chooses that word very particularly here because it would not be true to say that your old self has been annihilated, completely destroyed, that you no longer wrestle with it. That will be true for you one day, but it will be true at the resurrection on the last day. That's what glorification is about. Rather, what Paul is saying is that that old you, that old body of sin, it has been rendered impotent. It has been rendered powerless. It has been brought to nothing. It is not strong enough to be your master. The baptized believer does not have to obey the body's every command. It does not have to satisfy the body's every desire. Rather, the fruit of the indwelling spirit, says Paul in Galatians 5.22, is self-control. You, baptized believer, are not the slave of your body. You are, you are your body's master. Paul expresses this truth in 1 Corinthians 9.27. This is a great verse. 
for those of us who struggle with sin. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline. Literally, the word there is beat. I beat my body and I make it my slave in order that having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Listen to me. You don't have to eat every time your body says it's hungry. You don't have to sleep every time your body says it's tired. You don't have to give in every time your body lusts after something. That was the old self in Adam. That was the you before you were converted. That guy was the slave of his body. But that old self is dead. It was nailed to the cross. And a new self has been raised with Christ, and he is the master of his body. That is why you are no longer the slaves of sin. There is a cause and effect to verse 6. Your old self in Adam was crucified with Christ and is dead. Therefore, the body of sin has been rendered powerless. Therefore, you are no longer the slave of sin, which exercises its dominion through the body. Paul continues in verse 7 to explain how all of this can be. He says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free is not a great translation of that verb. Your, your, your Bible probably has in the footnote, or justify. Justify would be better. That's the way this verb has been translated every other place in the book of Romans. should probably be translated that way here. The idea then would be that our death in Christ satisfied the debt which we owed to sin whom Paul personifies as a cruel slave master. In Adam, in other words, we sold ourselves in slavery to sin, and we've been in bondage ever since. But, Paul says, dead men cannot still be slaves. They can no longer serve their master. Death, in a manner of speaking, releases them from their bondage. Death justifies them. Now this, of course, is no great consolation when we're talking about earthly slavery where the only way to be free of your master is to die. But it is consolation for the baptized believer because for us, death is followed by what? Resurrection. So if in Christ we died, justifying us and releasing us from our slavery to sin, then also in Christ we are raised. Not to return to slavery again, but to walk in freedom, what Paul calls newness of life. Now that brings us to the second indicative. Not only are you dead to sin, rather you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not only did we die with Christ, we were raised with Him as well. Look at verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's focus in these verses seem to be upon the finality and the quality of this new life. 
Now again, everything in this passage is predicated upon our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. Verse 8. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Therefore, we can learn something about this new life that we now live by looking at Christ's own death and resurrection. First, I want you to note how Paul stresses the finality of Christ's death. He's emphatic that having died and now been raised, Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. When he died, he died to sin once for all. Therefore, his resurrection is final. He is alive forevermore. His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, in other words, was qualitatively different than the resurrection of Lazarus, for instance, which was more of a resuscitation. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus died again. That resurrection is of a different sort than Christ's resurrection. When Jesus was raised, he was raised to immortality. He was raised imperishable. He was raised incorruptible. So there's a finality about this death and resurrection. Secondly, there's a qualitative difference. There's a new quality to Christ's new life. It is a life over which death and sin have no dominion. Paul describes it as a life unto God. That is a life that is refulgent with the life and the glory of God, a life that is dedicated to the worship of God. You remember in the gospel narratives that Christ's resurrection appearances display that his body was different. It was of a different sort. It was of a different nature. His resurrection existence was qualitatively different than his mortal existence. It was perfect. It was incorruptible. It was glorious. It was a Godward life, a life unto God, coursing with the life of God. Now, Paul wants us to take those two truths, which were true of Christ's resurrection, and he wants us to consider, verse 11, to reckon with the fact that if we are united with Christ, those same two truths are true of us. Our death to sin is final, once for all. There is no going back. That is precisely what I told Benjamin last week when we were spending some time together before the baptism. I said, now you understand what this means, son. There is no turning back. Even so, your conversion, your baptism was a final, decisive event in which you died to sin. Sin's claim upon you was broken. It is no longer your master. You are free. Likewise, your resurrection life is qualitatively different than your previous life in Adam. It is immortal, incorruptible, imperishable, glorious. Your soul, through the new birth, is now infused with the life and glory of God in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. These are the indicatives of the gospel. And Paul tells us in verse 11 to consider them to be true. Because if you are a baptized believer in Christ, they are. Now, as I said earlier, the Christian faith exists in the tension between the indicative and the imperative. Between the already and the not yet. 
We are already raised with Christ by faith. We have not yet experienced the resurrection of the dead that will occur on the last day. We have already died to sin by faith, but we, are not, we have not yet experienced the complete death to sin that will come at our glorification. So in this age, between the resurrection of Christ and his return on the last day, we exist in a kind of transitional stage where the old is giving way to the new, in which we experience the power of Christ's resurrection in part, but we've not yet attained to the resurrection of the dead. Between those two experiences, we must share in Christ's sufferings and be conformed to the likeness of his death, says Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In other words, in this age, we fight. In this age, we strive. In this age, we wrestle against sin. But we do so from the certainty and the assurance and the confidence of the indicative. If you are a baptized believer, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 12 Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul said in verse 6 that our old self, Okay? The us in Adam was crucified with Christ with the result that the body of sin was rendered powerless and we were set free from the slavery to sin. That's the indicative. That's the fact that is true for every baptized believer. If you are a baptized believer, that is true of you. Therefore, do not act as if you were still enslaved. That's the imperative. Sin, again, is here personified as a cruel and wicked tyrant who keeps his subjects enslaved to degrading passions that lead to the destruction of the body and of the soul. And Paul's telling you, baptized believer, you don't have to do what he says anymore. He has no claim over you. You died with Christ. You are justified in Him. You are free. Therefore, do not offer yourself, your mortal body, which you possess in this life before you put on immortality at the resurrection. Don't present it to sin any longer. Do not present your members as instruments to use in the service of unrighteousness. Sin is a poor master. His wages are death. All he offers is momentary fleeting pleasure followed by lasting shame and destruction. Rather, Paul says, offer yourself to God as a free man, as one alive from the dead, and offer your members to him for use in his service. Because his wages are infinitely better. Look down at verse 23. For the wages of sin is, tell me, Death, but the wages of, or but the gift of God, rather, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God rewards his servants with eternal life and joy in a kingdom that never ends. 
So let me press this home. You, baptized believer, are not enslaved to the sinful passions of your mortal body. You do not have to do what it says. You do not have to overeat. You do not have to overdrink. You do not have to oversleep. You do not have to watch pornography. You do not have to engage in immorality. You do not have to continue in an immoral relationship. You do not have to spread that gossip. You do not have to tell that lie. You do not have to give way to your temper. You do not have to obey sin. You are free. And one day you will rise in immortal glory in the kingdom of your Father and of Christ the Son, and you will reign over all that He has made. That's the indicative. So act like it. That's the imperative. But Paul does not end with the imperative. He returns right back to the indicative because the indicative is the gospel's native tongue. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Listen to me. You are and shall be free. Sin cannot reclaim those for whom Christ died, those over whom it has lost dominion. If you are a baptized believer in Christ, you will conquer. The day will come when you will stand victorious on the field of battle, sword in hand, standing over the bloodied corpse of the sin that now torments and harasses you and tries with all of its might to put you back in the chains of bondage. You will conquer in Christ. Now, we are out of time So we're going to return to this verse next week because there's more to be said about what it means to live under grace and not under law. But I'm going to give you a hint. It's just another way of speaking of being in Adam under law and being in Christ under grace. You were born under law, which is bad news for sinners. The only thing the law has to offer sinners is threat and punishment, death and wrath. But through faith, signified and sealed in baptism, you are now under grace. For Christ has redeemed you from the law by fulfilling all of its demands in your place. The work is done, the law is fulfilled, sin is defeated, grace reigns. Therefore, do not let sin reign over you, but walk in righteousness and truth and joy.